0: Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. In this episode, I'll be reading chapters 18 to 20 of Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. So let your eyes... Fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 18 The weather was bad during the latter days of the voyage. The wind Obstinately remaining in the northwest blew a gale and retarded the streamer. The Rangoon rolled heavily and the passengers became impatient of the long, monstrous waves which the wind raised before their path. A sort of tempest arose on the 3rd of November the squall knocking the vessel about with fury, and the waves running high. The Rangoon reefed all her sails, and even the rigour proved too much, whistling and shaking amid the squall. The streamer was forced to proceed slowly, and the captain estimated that she would reach Hong Kong 20 hours behind time, and more if the storm lasted. Phileas Fogg gazed at the tempestuous sea, which seemed to be struggling especially to delay him with his habitual tranquility. He never changed countenance for an instant, though a delay of 20 hours by making him too late for the Yokohama boat, would almost inevitably cause the loss of the wager. But this man of nerve manifested neither impatience nor annoyance. It seemed as if the storm were a part of his program and had been foreseen Uda was amazed to find him as calm as he had been from the first time she saw him. Fix did not look at the state of things in the same light. The storm greatly pleased him. His satisfaction would have been complete had the Rangoon been forced to retreat before the violence of the wind and waves. Each delay filled him with hope, for it became more and more probable that Fogg would be obliged to remain some days at Hong Kong, and now the heavens themselves became his allies, with the gust and squalls. It mattered not that they made him seasick, he made no account of this inconvenience, and Whilst his body was writhing under their effects, his spirit bounded with hopeful exultation. Passapartout was enraged beyond expression by the unpromptuous weather. Everything had gone so well till now. Earth and sea had seemed to be at his master's service. Steamers and railways obeyed him. Wind and steam united to speed his journey. Had the hour of adversity come, Passapartout was as much excited as if the twenty thousand pounds were to come from his own pocket. The storm exasperated him. The gale made him furious and he longed to lash the obstinate sea into obedience. Poor fellow. Fix carefully concealed from him his own satisfaction, for, had he betrayed it, Passapartout could scarcely have restrained himself from personal violence. Passapartout remained on deck, As long as the tempest lasted, being unable to remain quiet below, and taking it into his head to aid the progress of the ship by lending a hand with the crew, he overwhelmed the captain, officers, and sailors who could not help laughing at his impatience with all sorts of questions. He wanted to know exactly how long the storm was going to last, whereupon he was referred to the barometer, which seemed to have no intention of rising. Passapartout shook it, but with no perceivable effect, for neither shaking nor malediction could prevail upon it to change its mind. On the fourth However, the sea became more calm, and the storm lessened its violence. The wind veered southward, and was once more favorable. Passapartout cleared up with the weather. Some of the sails were unfurled, and the Rangoon resumed its most rapid speed. The time lost could not, however, be regained. Land was not signalled until five o'clock on the morning of the sixth. The steamer was due on the fifth. Phileas Fogg was twenty-four hours behind hand, and the Yokohama steamer would, of course, be missed. The pilot went on board at six and took his place on the bridge to guide the Rangoon through the channels to the port of Hong Kong. Passapartout longed to ask him if the steamer had left for Yokohama, but he dared not, for he wished to preserve the spark of hope, which still remained till the last moment. He had confined his anxiety to Fix, who, the sly rascal, tried to console him by saying that Mr. Fogg would be in time if he took the next boat, but this only put Passapart out in a passion. Mr. Fogg, bolder than his servant, did not hesitate to approach the pilot and tranquilly ask him if he knew when a steamer would leave Hong Kong for Yokohama. At high tide tomorrow morning, answered the pilot. Ah, said Mr. Fogg, without betraying any astonishment. Partout, who heard what passed, would willingly have embraced the pilot, while Fix would have gladly twisted his neck. What is the steamer's name? asked Mr. Fogg. The Carnatic. Ought she not to have gone yesterday? Yes, sir, but they had to repair one of her boilers and so her departure was postponed till tomorrow. Thank you, returned Mr. Fogg, descending mathematically to the saloon. Pass-apart out grasped the pilot's hand and shook it heartily in his delight, exclaiming, Pilot, you are the best of good fellows. The pilot probably does not know to this day why his responses won him this enthusiastic greeting. He remounted the bridge and guided the steamer through the flotilla of junks, tankers, and fishing boats which crowd the harbour of Hong Kong. At one o'clock, the Rangoon was at the quay, and the passengers were going ashore. Chance had strangely favoured Phileas Fogg, for had not the Carnatic been forced to lie over for repairing her boiler, she would have left on the 6th of November, and the passengers for Japan would have been obliged to wait for a week the sailing of the next steamer. Mr. Fogg was, it is true, 24 hours behind his time, but this could not seriously imperil the remainder of his tour. The steamer which crossed the Pacific from Yokohama to San Francisco made a direct connection with that from Hong Kong and it could not sail until the latter reached Yokohama and if Mr. Fogg was 24 hours late on reaching Yokohama this time would no doubt be easily regained in the voyage of 22 days across the Pacific he found himself then about 24 hours behind hand thirty-five days after leaving London. The Carnatic was announced to leave Hong Kong at five the next morning. Mr. Fogg had sixteen hours in which to attend to his business there, which was to deposit Uda safely with her wealthy relative. On landing, he conducted her to a planking, in which they repaired to the club hotel. A room was engaged for the young woman, and Mr. Fogg, after seeing that she wanted for nothing, set out in search of her cousin, Gigi. He instructed out to remain at the hotel until his return. The Tudor might not be left entirely alone. Mr. Fogg repaired to the exchange, where, he did no doubt, everyone would know so wealthy and considerable a person as the Parsi merchant. Meeting a broker, he made the inquiry to learn that Gigi had left China two years before, and, retiring from business with an immense fortune, had taken up residence in Europe. In Holland, the broker thought, with the merchants of which country he had principally traded. Phileas Fogg returned to the hotel, begged a moment's conversation with Uda, and without more ado appraised her that Gigi was no longer at Hong Kong, but probably in Holland. Uda at first said nothing. She passed her hand across her forehead and reflected a few moments. Then, in her sweet, soft voice, she said, What ought I to do, Mr. Fogg? It is very simple, responded the gentleman. Go on to Europe. But I cannot intrude. You do not intrude. "'Nor do you in the least embarrass my project, Passapartout, Monsieur. "'Go to the Carnatic and engage three cabins.' "'Passapartout, delighted that the young woman, who was very gracious to him, "'was going to continue the journey with them, "'went off at a brisk gait to obey his master's order.' Chapter 19 Hong Kong is an island which came into the possession of the English by the Treaty of Nankin after the War of 1842, and the colonizing genius of the English has created upon it an important city and an excellent port. The island is situated at the mouth of the Canton River and is separated by about 60 miles of the Portuguese town of Macau, on the opposite coast. Hong Kong has beaten Macau in the struggle for the Chinese trade, and now the great part of the transportation of Chinese goods finds its depot. At the former place. Docks, hospitals, wharfs, a gothic cathedral, a government house, macadamized streets give to Hong Kong the appearance of a town in Kent or Surrey transferred by some strange magic to the antipodes. Passapartout wandered with his hands in his pockets. Towards the Victoria port, gazing as he went at the curious planikins and other modes of conveyance, and the groups of Chinese, Japanese, and Europeans who passed to and fro in the streets. Hong Kong seemed to him not unlike Bombay, Calcutta, and Singapore, since, like them, it betrayed everywhere the evidence of English supremacy. At the Victoria port, he found a confused mass of ships of all nations English, French, American, and Dutch, men of war and trading vessels, Japanese and Chinese junks, Sempers, tankers, and flower boats which formed so many floating parterres. Passapartout noticed in the crowd a number of natives who seemed very old and were dressed in yellow. On going into a barber's to get shaved, he learned that these ancient men were all at least eighty years old, at which age they are permitted to wear yellow which is the imperial colour. out, without exactly knowing why, thought this very funny. On reaching the quay where they were to embark on the cartanic, he was not astonished to find Fix walking up and down. The detective seemed very much disturbed and disappointed. This is bad, muttered Passapartout, for the gentleman of the Reform Club. He accosted Fix with a merry smile, as if he had not perceived that gentleman's chagrin. The detective had, indeed, good reason to unveil against the bad luck which pursued him. The warrant had not come, It was certainly on the way, but as certainly as it could now not reach Hong Kong for several days, and, this being the last English territory on Mr. Fogg's route, the robber would escape, unless he could manage to detain him. Well, Monsieur Fix, said Passapartout, Have you decided to go with us so far as America? Yes, returned Fix, through his set teeth. Good, exclaimed Passapartout, laughing heartily. I knew you could not persuade yourself to separate from us. Come and engage your berth. They entered the steamer office and secured cabins for four persons. The clerk, as he gave them the tickets, informed them that the repairs on the cartanic have been completed. The steamer would leave that very evening, and not next morning, as had been announced. That will suit my master all the better, said Passapartout. I will go and let him know. Fix now decided to make a bold move. He resolved to tell out all. It seemed to be the only possible means of keeping Phileas Fogg several days longer at Hong Kong. He accordingly invited his companion into a tavern which caught his eye on the quay. On entering, they found themselves in a large room, handsomely decorated, at the end of which was a large camp bed, furnished with cushions. Several persons lay upon this bed in a deep sleep. At the small tables which were arranged about the room, some thirty customers were drinking English beer, porter, gin, and brandy, smoking, the while, long red clay pipes stuffed with little balls of opium mingled with essence of rose. From time to time one of the smokers, overcome with narcotic, would slip up under the table, whereupon the waiter, taking him by the head and feet, carried and laid him upon the bed. The bed already supported twenty of these stupefied sots. Fix and Passapartout saw that they were in a smoking house haunted by those wretched, cadaverous, idiotic creatures to whom the English merchants sell every year the miserable drug called opium to the amount of one million four hundred thousand pounds. Thousands devoted to one of the most despicable vices which afflict humanity. The Chinese government has in vain attempted to deal with the evil by stringent laws. It passes gradually from the rich, to whom it was at first exclusively reserved, to the lower classes, and then it ravages could not be arrested Opium is smoked everywhere, at all times, by men and women in the Celestial Empire, and, once accustomed to it, the victims cannot dispense with it, except by suffering horrible bodily contortions and agonies. A great smoker can smoke as many as eight pipes a day, but he dies in five years. It was in one of these dens that Fix and Passapartout, in search of a friendly glass, found themselves. Passapartout had no money, but willingly accepted Fix's invitation in the hope of returning the obligation at some future time. They ordered two bottles of port, to which the Frenchman did ample justice whilst Fix observed him with close attention. They chatted about the journey, and Passapartout was especially merry at the idea that Fix was going to continue with them. When the bottles were empty, however, he rose to go and tell his master of the change in the time of the sailing of the Carnatic. Fix caught him by the arm, and said wait a moment what for Mr. Fix I want to have a serious talk with you a serious talk cried Passapartout drinking up the little wine that was left in the bottom of the glass well we'll talk about it tomorrow I haven't time now stay stay What I have to say concerns your master. Passapartout, at this, looked attentively at his companion. Fix's face seemed to have a singular expression. He resumed his seat. What is it that you have to say? Fix placed his hand upon Passapartout's arm and, lowering his voice, said, you have guessed who I am Parbleu said passapart out, smiling. then I'm going to tell you everything. Now that I know everything, my friend, ah, that's very good. But go on, go on. first though, let me tell you that those gentlemen have put themselves to a useless expense. Useless, said Fix. You speak confidently. It's clear that you don't know how large the sum is. Of course I do, returned Passapartout. Twenty thousand pounds. Fifty-five thousand, answered Fix, pressing his companion's hand. What? cried the Frenchman. "'Has Monsieur Fogg dared? "'55,000 pounds? "'Well, there's all the more reason for not losing an instant,' he continued, getting up hastily. "'Dix pushed Passapart out back in his chair and resumed. "'55,000 pounds, and if I succeed, I get 2,000 pounds.' If you'll help me, I'll let you have five hundred of them. Help you? cried Passapartout, whose eyes were standing wide open. Yes, help me keep Mr. Fogg here for two or three days. Why, what are you saying? Those gentlemen are not satisfied with following my master and suspecting his honour but they must try to put obstacles in his way. I blush for them. What do you mean? I mean that it is a piece of shameful trickery. They might as well waylay Mr. Fogg and put his money in their pockets. That's just what we count on doing. It's a conspiracy then, cried out who became more and more excited as the liquor mounted in his head, for he drank without perceiving it. A real conspiracy, and gentlemen too. Bah. Fix began to be puzzled. Members of the Reform Club continued Passapartout. You must know, Monsieur Fix, that my master is an honest man, and that, when he makes a wager, he tries to win it fairly. "'But who do you think I am?' asked Fix, looking at him intently. Parbleu, an agent of the members of the Reform Club, sent out here to interrupt my master's journey. But—' Though I found you out some time ago, I've taken good care to say nothing about it to Mr. Fogg. He knows nothing then? Nothing, replied Passapartout, again emptying his glass. The detective passed his hand across his forehead, hesitating before he spoke again. What should he do? Passapartout's mistake seemed sincere, but it made his design more difficult. It was evident that the servant was not the master's accomplice, as Fix had been inclined to suspect. Well, said the detective to himself, as he is not an accomplice, he will help me. He had no time to lose, Fogg must be detained at Hong Kong, so he resolved to make a clean breast of it. Listen to me, said Fix abruptly, I am not, as you think, an agent of the members of the Reform Club. Bah, retorted Passapartout with an air of raillery, I am a police detective sent out here by London office you a detective I will prove it here is my commission Passapartout was speechless with astonishment when Fix displayed this document the genuineness of which could not be doubted Mr. Fogg's wager resumed Fix is only a pretext of which you and the gentlemen of the reform are dupes He had a motive for securing your innocent complicity. But why? Listen. On the 28th of last September, a robbery of £55,000 was committed at the Bank of England by a person whose description was fortunately secured. Here is his description. It answers exactly to that. Of Mr. Phileas Fogg. What nonsense! cried Passapartout, striking the table with his fist. My master is the most honourable of men. How can you tell? You know scarcely anything about him. You went into his service the day he came away, and he came away on a foolish pretext, without trunks and carrying a large amount of banknotes, and yet you are bold enough to assert that he is an honest man. Yes, yes, repeated the poor fellow mechanically. Would you like to be arrested as his accomplice? Passapartout, overcome by what he had heard, held his head between his hands, and did not dare to look at the detective. Phileas Fogg, the saviour of Uda, that brave and generous man, a robber, and yet how many presumptions there were against him. Passapartout essayed to reject the suspicions which forced themselves upon his mind. He did not wish to believe that his master was guilty. Well, what do you want of me? said he at last, with an effort. See here, replied Vix. I have tracked Mr. Fogg to this place, but as yet I have failed to receive the warrant of arrest for which I sent to London. You must help me to keep him here in Hong Kong. I, but I... I will share with you the two thousand pound reward offered by the Bank of England. Never, replied Passapartout, who tried to rise, but fell back, exhausted in mind and body. Mr. Fix, he stammered, even should what you say be true, if my master is really the robber you are seeking for, Which I deny. I have been, am, in his service. I have seen his generosity and goodness, and I will never betray him, not for all the gold in the world. I come from a village where they don't eat that kind of bread. You refuse. I refuse. Consider that I've said nothing. "'said Fix, and let us drink. "'Yes, let us drink.' "'Passapartout felt himself yielding more and more to the effects of the liquor. "'Fix, seeing that he must, at all hazards, be separated from his master, "'wished to entirely overcome him. "'Some pipes full of opium lay upon the table.' Fix slipped one into Passapartout's hand. He took it, put it between his lips, lit it, drew several puffs, and his head, becoming heavy under the influence of the narcotic, fell upon the table. At last, said Fix, seeing Passapartout unconscious, Mr. Fogg will not be informed of the Carnatic's departure, and, if he is, he will have to go without this cursed Frenchman. And, after paying his bill, Fix left the tavern. Chapter 20 While these events were passing at the Opium House, Mr. Fogg, unconscious of the danger he was in of losing the steamer, was quietly escorting Ooda about the streets of the English Quarter, making the necessary purchases for the long voyage before them. It was all very well for an Englishman like Mr. Fogg to make the tour of the world with a carpet bag. A lady could not be expected to travel comfortably under such conditions. He acquitted his task with characteristic serenity, and invariably replied to the remonstrances of his fair companion, who was confused by his patience and generosity. It is in the interest of my journey a part of my program, the purchases made, they returned to the hotel, where they dined at a sumptuously served table the hoe, after which Uda, shaking hands with her protector after the English fashion, retired to her room to rest. Mr Fogg absorbed himself throughout the evening in the perusal of the Times and illustrated London news. Had he been capable of being astonished at anything, it would have been not to see his servant return at bedtime, but, knowing that the steamer was not to leave for Yokohama until the next morning, he did not disturb himself about the matter. When Passapartout did not appear the next morning to answer his master's bell, Mr. Fogg not betraying the least vexation, contented himself with taking his carpet bag, calling Ooda and sending for a plankin. It was then eight o'clock. At half past nine, it being then high tide, the Carnatic would leave the harbour. Mr. Fogg and Ooda got into the plankin, their luggage being brought after on a wheelbarrow, and half an hour later stepped upon the quay whence they were to embark. Mr. Fogg then learned that the Carnatic had sailed the evening before. He had expected to find not only the steamer, but his domestic, and was forced to give up both but no sign of disappointment appeared on his face, and he merely remarked to Uda, It is an accident, madame, nothing more. At this moment a man who had been observing him attentively approached. It was Fix, who, bowing, addressed Mr Fogg. Were you not like me, sir? A passenger by the Rangoon, which arrived yesterday. I was, sir, replied Mr. Fogg coldly, but I have not the honor. Pardon me, I thought I should find your servant here. Do you know where he is, sir? asked Uda anxiously. What? responded Fix, feigning surprise. "'Is he not with you?' "'No,' said Uda. "'He has not made his appearance since yesterday. "'Could he have gone on board the Carnatic without us?' "'Without you, madam,' answered the detective. "'Excuse me, did you intend to sail in the Carnatic?' "'Yes, sir.' "'So did I, madam,' and I'm excessively disappointed. The Carnatic, its repairs being completed, left Hong Kong twelve hours before the stated time, without any notice being given, and we must now wait a week for another steamer. As he said a week, Fix felt his heart leap for joy, Fogg detained at Hong Kong for a week. There would be time for the warrant to arrive, and fortune at last favoured the representative of the law. His horror may be imagined when he heard Mr. Fogg say in his placid voice, that there are other vessels beside the Carnatic. It seems to me in the harbour of Hong Kong, and, offering his arm to Uda, he directed his steps towards the docks, in search of some craft about to start. Fix, stupefied, followed. It seemed as if he were attached to Mr. Fogg by the invisible thread. Chance, however, appeared really to have abandoned the man it had hitherto served so well. For three hours, Phileas Fogg wandered about the docks with the determination, if necessary, to charter a vessel to carry him to Yokohama, but he could only find vessels which were loading or unloading, and which could not therefore set sail. Vix began to hope again, but Mr. Fogg Far from being discouraged, was continuing his search, resolved not to sleep if he had to resort to Macau, when he was accosted by a sailor on one of the wharves. Is your honor looking for a boat? Have you a boat to sail? Yes, your honor, a pilot boat, number 43. The best in the harbour. Does she go fast? Between eight and nine knots the hour. Will you look at her? Yes. Your honour will be satisfied with her. Is it for a sea excursion? No, for a voyage. A voyage? Yes. Will you agree to take me to Yokohama? The sailor leaned on the railing, opened his eyes wide, and said, Is your honour joking? No, I have missed the Carnatic, and I must get to Yokohama by the 14th at the latest to take the boat for San Francisco. I am sorry, said the sailor, but it is impossible I offer you a hundred pounds per day, and an additional reward of two hundred pounds if I reach Yokohama in time. Are you in earnest? Very much so. The pilot walked away a little distance and gazed out to sea, evidently struggling between the anxiety to gain a large sum and the fear of venturing so far. Fix was in mortal suspense. Mr. Fogg turned to Uda and asked her, You would not be afraid, would you, madam? Not with you, Mr. Fogg, was her answer. The pilot now returned, shuffling his hat in his hands. Well, pilot, said Mr. Fogg, Well, your honor, replied he, I could not risk myself, my men, or my little boat of scarcely twenty ton on so long a voyage at this time of year. Besides, we could not reach Yokohama in time, for it is sixteen hundred and sixty miles from Hong Kong. Only sixteen hundred, said Mr. Fogg. It's the same. Fix breathed more freely. But, added the pilot, it might be arranged another way. Fix ceased to breathe at all. How? asked Mr. Fogg. By going to Nagasaki, at the extreme south of Japan, or even to Shanghai, which is only 800 miles from here. In going to Shanghai, we should not be forced to sail wide of the Chinese coast, which would be a great advantage as the currents run northward and would aid us. Pilot, said Mr. Fogg, I must take the American steamer at Yokohama and not at Shanghai or Nagasaki. Why not, returned the pilot, The San Francisco steamer does not start from Yokohama. It puts it at Yokohama and Nagasaki, but it starts from Shanghai. You are sure of that? Perfectly. And when does the boat leave Shanghai? On the 11th at 7 in the evening. We have, therefore, four days before us. That is ninety-six hours, and in that time, if we had good luck and a southwest wind, and the sea was calm, we could make those eight hundred miles to Shanghai. And you could go, in an hour, as soon as provisions could be got aboard and the sails put up. It's a bargain. You are the master of the boat? Yes, John Bunsby, Master of the Tankadere. Would you like some earnest money? If it would not put your honour out. Here are two hundred pounds on account, sir, added Phileas Fogg, turning to Fix. If you would like to take advantage. Thanks, sir, I was about to ask the favour. Very well. In half an hour we shall go on board. But poor Passapartout, urged Uda, who was much disturbed by the servant's disappearance. I shall do all I can to find him, replied Phileas Fogg. While Fix, in a feverish, nervous state, repaired to the pilot boat, the others directed their course to the police station at Hong Kong. Phileas Fogg there gave Passapartout's description and left a sum of money to be spent in the search for him, the same formalities having been gone through at the French consult and the Plannikin having stopped at the hotel for the luggage, which had been sent back there, they returned to the wharf. It was now three o'clock and pilot boat number 43, with its crew on board and its provisions stored away, was ready for departure. The tankadier was a neat little craft of twenty tons, as gracefully built as if she were a racing yacht. Her shining copper sheathing, her galvanized ironwork, her deck white as ivory, betraying the pride taken by John Bunsby in making her presentable. Her two masts leaned a trifle backwards. She carried brigantine, foresail, storm jib, and standing jib, and was well rigged for running before the wind, and she seemed capable of brisk speed, which, indeed, She had already proved by gaining several prizes in pilot boat racing. The crew of the Tankadere was composed of John Bunsby, the master, and four hardy mariners who were familiar with the Chinese seas. John Bunsby himself, a man of forty-five or thereabouts, vigorous, sunburnt, with a sprightly expression of the eye, and energetic and self-reliant countenance, would have inspired confidence in the most timid. Phileas Fogg and Uda went on board, where they found Fix already installed. Below deck was a square cabin, of which the walls bulged out in the form of cots, above a circular divan. In the center was a table provided with a swinging lamp. The accommodation was confined but neat. I am sorry to have nothing better to offer you, said Mr. Fogg to Fix, who bowed without responding. The detective had a feeling akin to humiliation in profiting by the kindness of Mr. Fogg. It's certain though he thought though rascal as he is he is a polite one the sails and the English flag were hoisted at ten past three Mr. Fogg and Uda, who were seated on deck cast a last glance at the quay, in the hope of a spying pass apart out Fix was not without his fears lest chance should direct the steps of the unfortunate servant, whom he had so badly treated, in this direction, in which case an explanation the reverse of satisfactory to the detective must have ensued. But the Frenchman did not appear, and, without doubt, was still lying under the stupefying influence of the opium. John Bunsby, master, at length gave the order to start, and the tankadier, taking the wind under her brigantine, foresail, and standing jib, bounded briskly forward over the waves."